Hello, I'm Dr. Sarah Jarvis, and welcome to the HEPcast, a podcast series about the people fighting to eliminate hepatitis C, a disease that affects 71 million people worldwide. This, our second episode, will focus on testing, exploring why so many people living with hepatitis C, an estimated 58 million people worldwide, are unaware of the diagnosis and asking what we can do to increase testing. I'm joined by three inspiring women from three corners of the world, the USA, Egypt, and Switzerland, to shed a light on some truly groundbreaking projects in hepatitis C testing. First, we have Manal El Sayed. She is Professor of Pediatrics at Ain Sham University in Cairo and a member of the Egyptian National Committee for the Control of Viral Hepatitis. Sonia Shilton is the Deputy Head of HCV Access at Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, FIND. And of course, most important of all, Jennifer Slepin is founder of Hepcare Stream, the Hepatitis C Clinical Education Group, as well as an HCV activist and nurse. And the reason I say most important of all, because clearly all our presenters are important, is because she has lived experience. She's lived with HCV for over 30 years. So I'm going to start with you, if I may, Jennifer, and just ask a little bit about your background. Clearly, that's been a long, old journey. When and why were you first tested for hepatitis C? Well, back in the day, uh, my uncle challenged me to uh, become a blood donor. He had given gallons and gallons. And so when I became of age uh, to give blood, he challenged me to catch up with him. So I gave a bunch of blood. I think, I don't remember when I started exactly, but anyway, I had been giving blood for years. And in 1993, I went, I would give twice a year, and I got a letter from the Red Cross. And they said, thank you, but no thank you. We don't want your blood. You tested positive for HCV. Wow. Yeah. At the time, almost nothing was known about it. It was just the advent. And they started testing the blood supply for HIV and then Hep C. Gosh, I, I have to say I'm I'm stunned at the idea that you could just get a letter in the post saying thanks, but no thanks, your hepatitis C positive, and it was literally like that. Well, it you know it was it was uh, very straightforward. It just said that there were antibodies for HCV, but they just said you may want to follow up with your primary care doctor. That was it, and I did. And what happened? Were there any barriers to you getting tested? No, but as we know, in 1993, so little was known about it. My primary care provider, uh, I'll never forget in the clinical note, he wrote, no vino. He told me, he just said, don't drink any more wine, you know, or be, be judicious with your alcohol intake. And he suggested perhaps that I see a physician uh, in Chapel Hill. I was living in North Carolina at the time. And so, you know, I think I just sort of sat on it for a while. Ultimately, I did go see the specialist. So can I ask you then what it was that prompted you to, to begin your treatment to make that new step? Let me start answering that question by saying this. I, as a nurse, and I think those of us on the panel here who are healthcare providers, I employed what I call my shield of immunity. As long as I was taking care of all in my clinical practice, then nothing was going to happen to me. So I just buried my head in the sand. Again, I think if it had been in today's world, I might have, we know so much more. But I had a brother who was a lifelong heroin user, 
alcohol. And so I focused on him. And I really just, I co- I've coined a phrase, I call it stignorance. So in my mind, because of my brother and the judgment that I had against him, I mean, I loved him, but his lifestyle was quite chaotic. And so I just hid behind my shield and also didn't want to put myself in the classification of how I, in my mind, classified my brother. Do you know, I'm really interested. I'm listening to that. And obviously, as a GP, we try really hard. And when I'm training other GPs, a huge amount of what we do is talking about non-judgmental language. But when it comes to you and your brother, of course, you th- this is this is family. And it's it's impossible at that emotional level not to have feelings about the life choices they've made. How did it make you feel to know that, you know, you were... Pepsi positive when in fact you considered your life to be so completely different to his, which might be considered high risk for Pepsi. Well, you know, again, just just burying my head in the sand, 15 years passed from the time that I got my diagnosis to the time I actually sought treatment. And over that course of time, I did see, I had started seeing a hepatologist. He regularly begged me to do the treatment, but I didn't want to do. The treatment available at the time was so difficult uh, that I just elected not to do it. But as my brother continued to get sicker, I, in the back of my head, I knew, I thought we have the same disease. And so no matter how it's being provoked, it's still happening. So I finally went and I had a CT. My CT said early cirrhosis. I have cirrhosis. And at that point, I really had to look in the mirror and say, I had been rowing my brother's boat for so long that mine was beginning to sink. And so that was the catalyst for finally. But I really, I denied it like like nobody's business. I, I really want to come back to this, but I'm very conscious that we have two other experts with us. So I'm going to move now to Manal and ask you, uh, you've just heard Jennifer's story as it happens. She was identified by accident because she was giving blood. But I suspect that that is not always the case. Of course, an awful lot of people don't give blood. Can you tell me a little bit about your background, how you became involved in viral hepatitis? Yeah, thank you. In fact, I was a resident in general pediatrics and finished my residency. And then I was appointed in a unit that specialized in hematology oncology in 1990. In addition to general pediatrics, there were dealing with children who were receiving multiple blood transfusions and those receiving cancer chemotherapy. On my first day, my professor, my late professor, said, I have an excellent research point for your doctorate degree thesis. And he said, there is a newly discovered virus called hepatitis C. It was, the term was coined in late 1989. So that was very, very early. And he said, very few labs, private labs only do the tests, but there is the Naval American Medical Research Unit in Cairo who do the tests. They have excellent labs. And we can have a meeting with them and we start and discuss doing the test for those children receiving multiple transfusions. And that was my beginning and my interest. You'll be surprised to know that some of those children became adults and have children and I'm still seeing them. They still visit me. They still come to me. We diagnosed at that time 
a prevalence of hepatitis C in 90% of those receiving multiple transfusions. Wow. So, yeah, that was, that was really terrible. And even children who were receiving cancer chemotherapy, we had 80% prevalence of hepatitis C. And there was only one test available at that time, which was the ELISA test. And later on, we confirmed our tests with something called the RIBA test. And then in following years, we had the molecular test or the virus test, where we could confirm that those were infected. And we published the first paper ever showing a very high prevalence rate of hepatitis C in children. And after sitting my exam in, in 93, I started pursuing this career. Extraordinary to think that you were working on this when it literally had only just been discovered. Um, you mentioned this extraordinarily, very worryingly high level of hepatitis C when you tested it among children having multiple transfusions and children receiving treatment for cancer. But I believe that Egypt generally has a very high prevalence of hepatitis C. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you think might be explaining that? Yes, there has been several studies in the early 90s looking at the reasons for why Egypt has very high prevalence rate of hepatitis C. And what really set Egypt apart from other countries was the very high prevalence of schistosomiasis. And that's a parasite. Since the 50s, there was a mass treatment with an intravenous drug for schistosomiasis. So people used to stand in queues receiving those injections for decades. And that's the real reason for why this virus became endemic and even an epidemic in the country for so for several decades, they were using injections. You know, the old syringes were glass syringes. They're not well serialized. There was no vigilant infection control practices at that time. So many, many people got infected. And that was the actual reservoir of infection for many, many years to come. And later on, that was sustained in the community through the lack of proper awareness about infection control and how the virus was transmitted. And of course, many got it through blood transfusions. Many more got it through hospitals and nosocomial infections, dental practices, and even informal health practices in villages. We had for many years uh, experienced in villages unsafe injections. You know, in many resource-limited countries, people like to take injections as a medicine instead of pills. They feel that this is going to cure them very quickly. They think it's more, if tablets are good, injections are better. Uh, yes. And, and we used to receive requests even from uh, the parents of children telling us, OK, he has a fever. Why aren't you giving him an injection? It's wow. going to cure him faster. He's going to get better faster. So that's kind of, of lack of awareness and that kind of culture, I think, sustained the infection in the community for many, many years and decades. So we have a clear example of how it could just spread like wildfire across a community, because of course, effectively, what you're doing is treating one condition and completely unwittingly causing another, which is can be silent for so many years. Now, clearly, Egypt is now with your help and the help of some of your expert colleagues trying to address that. Can you tell us a little bit about your role in the Egyptian National Committee for Control of Viral Hepatitis and tell us more about the, the goals of the committee? Well, well, the, the National Committee for Viral Hepatitis was established in 2006. 
And I think that's the first in the world, first country to have a strategy for viral hepatitis. We were assigned by the Minister of Health. We were all professors from universities. We had an expert from Pasteur Institute, was involved for many years in, in epidemiological studies in Egypt, and another expert from the U.S., but we were all volunteers and selected carefully by the minister because of our work over the previous decade in viral hepatitis. And our goals were, first of all, to have uh, to estimate the burden of the disease in Egypt because there were many conflicting data about uh, the prevalence of hepatitis C. So we integrated the hepatitis C testing within the demographic health survey that was held twice, actually 2008 and 2015. And we started testing uh, a number, a big number from the population from different states or governorates. And we knew at that time that the prevalence was of the antibodies in the blood were 15% of the population. And we knew that 10% had chronic infection and required treatment. So clearly, in order to find people you need to treat, you have to identify people. I want just to move from you, if I may, Manal, to Sonyel, and just ask you, because clearly your role is at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics. So you are there looking, I think, for new and innovative technologies. You're looking to see how you can simplify hepatitis C screening services. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in hepatitis and your role at the foundation? Sure, yes. So I actually um, got involved with viral hepatitis before I came to find um, when I was working in Ghana um, doing um, community-based health outreach in rural villages. We came across a young boy who had um, swollen liver and swollen spleen and he was completely distended belly and we took him to the doctors to try and figure out what was going on. The doctors uh, were not able to identify the source of, uh, of the swelling. Um, they thought it could be viral hepatitis, but there was no test available. So we helped the boy to manage his symptoms. Uh, he got better. He was able to go to school because he was able to fit into a school uniform again. And, and so that was a nice recovery, but it was short-lived. Since we were not able to identify what the cause was, we, we weren't able to address, you know, the, the root cause of it. So I do remember that he did give me his family's prized rooster um, because he was so grateful to be able to go back to school. And so he wanted me to uh, take the rooster and eat it. And I couldn't. So we kept the rooster. The rooster had a good long life. Um, well, I'm welling up here. <laughs> um, that's, an ex that's an extraordinary indication of how prized indeed education, of course, so often is in Africa, but how, you know, the, the difference that you make to somebody, even though you couldn't make the diagnosis at the time. So, you know, what happens when you can make the diagnosis and get the treatment? Exactly. So I, I became more and more interested in understanding how to identify. You know, we, we often say um, without diagnostics, medicine is blind. And I, I feel that this certainly is the case, especially with uh, diseases that can, uh, can affect the liver and the liver systems, because it can be really difficult to understand what's causing the jaundice or what's causing these, these you know, clinical symptoms. And in the case of hepatitis C, you know, we really want to find these people before the symptoms start. So with, with FIND, what we look at is how, 
how to use the technology that we have in the best ways, and then what are the gaps um, that we still have? So what new technology needs to be developed? So it's, um, it's looking at both of those ends of the spectrum. But if you're going to be looking at the developing as well as the developed world, it has to be affordable technology. Absolutely. We're a global nonprofit and we focus on uh, low and middle income countries. So the, the global south, as they call it. And so a key aspect of all the technologies that we um, try and help through the development pipeline is that they meet the patient's needs, um, that they are high quality and that they are affordable. Um, because I think with the hepatitis C response in low and middle income countries, it's a really big challenge as there are not the funding mechanisms that you might see for other diseases of importance, such as HIV or tuberculosis or malaria. Hepatitis C doesn't have that. Finding somebody with hepatitis C, it's a multiple step process. So in each step of that process, you've got to make it as inexpensive as possible. Absolutely. And you talked about what FIND aims to do. Tell me about what they've achieved, what they've managed in terms of hep C testing and, and wider screening. Yeah, so we look at diagnostics from the, the beginning to the development to then the deployment and use of the diagnostic. So when we're thinking in the development phase, we've worked with a bunch of manufacturers to advance a couple of different tests uh, through the pipeline. So one of the things we've been able to do is do evaluations to ensure the quality of what's called rapid diagnostic tests for HCV, uh, for hepatitis C. Um, and so rapid diagnostic tests are the first step in the testing pathway. Um, and when FIND started working on this, there was only a few, a very small number of tests that were kind of regulated by the WHO as being considered good quality to use. And so we worked with a number of manufacturers to evaluate their performance of their test to see which ones were high enough quality to be used. We also worked with some manufacturers to develop a prototype for a self-test for hepatitis C, which is quite exciting because, you know, especially now in the context of COVID-19, we want to try and minimize people's exposure to the health system if they don't need to go to the health system. So potentially hepatitis C self-testing could be one way that we can increase access to testing while limiting unnecessary exposures to, to health systems. Jennifer? How would you have felt if self-testing had been available when you first got that letter from the Red Cross or indeed before then when you realized the path your brother was going down? I will say if there had been a self-test, I think it would have been easier to sort of in my own privacy learn what was the matter with me. Uh, I mean, not that I didn't even have symptoms, but I feel like a self-test because of stigma. A lot of people won't go to the doctor or go to get a test because of stigma. And I think it removes that barrier. You can learn about your own personal health in the privacy of your own home. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that you talk about not knowing it not being on your radar. Of course, Manal has said that in Egypt, of course, when 15%, I think you said, of the population um, have got it. I think people are very much more aware. So can I ask you, Manal, what you can tell us about Egypt's national campaign to supercharge Pepsi screening? We knew that there are at least 3 million people who were infected but did not know that they had hepatitis C. So we started to think about screening. We had to find the missing millions. In addition to the awareness campaigns, we started to design some screening programs 
In 2017, we had a screening program for high-risk population groups, uh, like the healthcare providers, like those who are receiving uh, blood transfusions or giving blood transfusions, etc. So we had a very sort of high-risk population screening. And we only could manage to detect quarter of a million people, but we still did not scratch the tip of the iceberg. We knew that there were many unaware of their disease. Of course, this was coupled with awareness campaigns uh, about infection control, about the community-acquired infections and awareness to the public uh, to go and get themselves tested. 2018 was the game changer. 2018, the president pledged to eliminate hepatitis C 2020 instead of 2030, the goal of the World Health Organization, and said, you have to screen the whole population. And we said, Your Excellency, this is not possible. We can do it in three years, four years. He said, no, you have one year. You plan and you screen everybody. And from there, we started to work really hard. We had three months of preparation. And in those three months, we had to find first the best test to use. And the best test here would be a rapid diagnostic test, like Sonial mentioned right now, a rapid diagnostic test with a finger prick that would be the optimum test. And we started looking for rapid diagnostic tests and we found the best one that was approved by the World Health Organization. And we negotiated the price to a really low price to 0.58 cents per test. And that price also included all the logistics from the training to the distribution, to the districts, to all the chain supply, everything. So we got this price and the government pledged to pay for the testing of the whole population. We knew that we had 62 million people above the age of 18 years who are eligible for testing. So what we did is we downloaded all the national ID numbers on our system And we had every single person's ID that needs to be tested in this campaign. And we integrated the campaign with non-communicable disease testing, diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. And that encouraged the whole population to get tested. As a GP, I order blood tests on patients all the time. And of course, it'll be, you know, kidney function, liver function, what's your blood glucose control like? So all of these things have, they have no stigma and people kind of take them for granted. Now, I think that possibly it's a little bit different in in Egypt when so many people were affected. So extraordinary progress you made there. And of course, logistically, it makes it so much more practical if you're harnessing people who are already in there having blood tests. Yeah, if you want to learn a little bit about the screening program, it's very, the logistics were very detailed and very complicated. And uh, we had to design everything, single part of it, you know. Uh, We had to use also movie stars and music stars for advertisement and awareness campaigns. It was everywhere on TV, social media, billboards, everywhere on the radio. The majority of people were tested in primary healthcare facilities. And it doesn't matter where you live. You can go anywhere, the closest primary healthcare facility, the closest hospital, 
we even had mobile units going to soccer games, going to mosques, going to churches on Sundays in Sunday mass. Uh, there was a hotline number if people called and said, we cannot go anywhere, uh, we cannot move from our homes, people would go to their homes and get them tested. And the teams were very well trained. I'm going to move on, if I may, and come back to Jennifer, because, of course, being diagnosed means that you know what's wrong. But it also means, in your case, you waited until you had a diagnosis of early cirrhosis. For some other people, they may decide to take that next step sooner. But how is your life different now, knowing you've been cured of hepatitis C? It has made all the difference in the world. Um, I think, again, reflecting on watching my brother, who ultimately died from liver failure in uh, 2008. And so having watched someone go down that road, that's where I thought I was headed. Because as I said earlier, it kind of doesn't matter how you got it. It's once you get it, the virus just wants to live in your liver and destroy it. You know, no discrimination. Uh, it'll take any liver it can get. And so I knew that I was, if I didn't get treated, that I was likely going to end up dead or needing a transplant. So when I was cured, the way I describe it, it it's as if a superhero jumped out of my chest. I was so liberated that I thought, you know, I have grandchildren and I thought, I'll get to watch my grandchildren grow up. I will, you know, my life is once again possible. So my cure, and my cure is actually what inspired me to do the work that I just did. Well, it's interesting you say that because, of course, you then became a founder of Hep C Clinical Education Group, aka Hep Care Stream. Now, can you tell us a little bit more specifically, perhaps focusing on the testing element of your organization and what their goals are? Yes. Uh, so once I was cured, uh, the physician who cured me, her name is Nora Tarot, and Dr. Tarot is a very well respected and internationally recognized hepatologist. And so the two of us, we founded HepCare Stream. And the idea was that I would live in this airstream that I'm in right now. And we identified 13 counties in Northern California that we knew had a high disease burden. And so I wasn't doing testing. I had the capability of going out and testing people but we felt like that was sort of a small piece uh, of the work. Instead, our work was to go out and educate primary care providers because historically, hepatitis C used to be only treated by a hepatologist, which is a specialty. And because of the broad uh, presence of this disease in every, in every sector, of populations, we felt that teaching primary care providers how to test and then treat Hep C, we would we would have far more reach. So you were actually working with primary care providers to encourage them and to educate them about the need to test more widely and to make it more of a an everyday phenomenon. Absolutely, to really get the primary care community to embrace hepatitis C. It's a chronic disease like diabetes, hypertension. So that that was the goal. Um, and we've had great success. 
How crucial do you think primary care and nurse-led programs are in in hepatitis C testing? Grassroots important. Um, You know, I think primary care, because that's really sort of the port of entry for many people uh, to healthcare, would be really helpful. I feel like nurses, we're often underutilized. And I believe that nurses and pharmacists, um, people who are really more accessible. I think that really removes barriers. There are a lot of barriers to getting treated. And so I think nurse-led innovative programs, I'm thinking of one in San Francisco uh, led by Pierre Cedric Crouch, which was a point of care testing. I mean, we don't have that in the United States, but he created a program at the Magnet facility in, in San Francisco, which is typically for HIV, but he was getting people diagnosed within a week and starting them on treatment immediately. Uh, I think that's another innovation, not so much nurse-led, it's just innovation is really important in making this process much more streamlined. Sonia, I know that your organization, FIND, is primarily involved in diagnostics, but to hear about initiatives like that, initiatives like Jennifer's, where they've been making it much more widely available through primary care, whether it's through nurses or through primary care physicians. And likewise, of course, the extraordinary work that Manal and her colleagues have done in in Egypt. Uh, Where do you think that sits within the goals of the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics? You know, the test is only as good as the system that it's used in, right? You can have the best test ever, but if it's not easy to fit into the system, then it's not going to be used, right? So from our perspective, we we think about the technology, but we also think about the patient and how the technology will interact with the patient and the system. So thinking about testing as decentralized risk-based screening at places where people already go for care um, and decentralized treatment. To us, that's, that's kind of the ideal package. And, you know, we worked with Burnett Institute in Myanmar on a one-stop shop model of care, very similar to the one that, that Jennifer brought up. In this model, we had a um, drop-in center. So this is a place where people who inject drugs can go to get needles and syringes. And we integrated rapid diagnostic screening and rapid diagnostic confirmation, so point of care uh, confirmation that you have the the disease. And we were able to implement people on treatment within three days from being screened for hepatitis C. So if this can be done, you know, what I like is that Jennifer's model is in San Francisco and it can be done. And the model that we did with Burnett Institute is in Myanmar and it can be done. So it shows that it's possible in a wide range of settings. Yeah, they're pretty different countries. <laughs> um, speaking of that impact and at-risk populations, I'm just going to come back to you, Jennifer, I may, and, and ask you about the major risk factors, the major populations affected in the USA, because you were talking about those very high-risk populations in California. I believe that a huge part of many people like me who had hep C or have hep C who are in my age group are from poor infectious disease practices. I call it the tale of two epidemics where now the majority of uh, new cases are coming from younger people who are injecting drugs. And so this is this is a real barrier because people who are not involved 
in that lifestyle immediately judge. And like I did with my brother, I did not want to be lumped into that category. And so I think it's really important to just kind of remove all these barriers and just understand this is simply a virus that is non-discriminatory. It wants to live in whomever it can get into. That's a great way of putting it. I know, Manal, you've explained a lot about the major risk factors in the populations. You've given a superb account of how it started and how it's been, been perpetuated. But can you tell us a little bit about what impact Hep C was having in your country in Egypt? Of course, the impact, the main impact, uh, apart from the burden of liver disease and the cost of treatment uh, at that time point and the cost of advanced liver disease treatment in hospitals and patients who needed it required the liver transplantation and had to either pay for it. It was not paid by the government at that time. Now, all these services are given by the government for free and the whole program treatment, testing, everything was state-funded, completely paid by the government. And that's that's something that's really fantastic. And I think this model can be replicated in other countries, the political will and initiative and advocacy and support. And this all came from the civil society, from the people, from the media, from politicians. So I think it's a, it's a, a whole group working together. But stigma at some point was really, really problematic. People were not employed because they were hepatitis C positive. And we had to do a lot of effort to remove the stigma from hepatitis C and to ensure equity and equality in services and in treatment of people. In children, stigma is still a problem. We have a very nice screening program for children as we screened 50 million adults in Egypt in seven months. We also started a school screening program and we screened around 9 million children. And we made sure during this screening program to make it voluntary, parents had to approve and it was in private, very confidential. Only the parents were informed about the status of their children. And in one account, one single account, the children knew that one child was infected and they avoided her completely. Their parents told them, please don't get near her. So stigma, I think, is one of the major barriers in many, many countries, but also for children in particular and for women in many accounts. Women in childbearing age, women before marriage, um, I don't think it's a big problem for men as much as it is for women. If a woman was diagnosed with hepatitis C before marriage, probably this marriage is not uh, going to be consummated <laughs> at any point. And women in resource-limited countries are underprivileged and there is no equity. So rather than, for example, we're talking about triple elimination of hepatitis B, syphilis, and HIV that everybody's advocating for, why not add hepatitis C and rid those women of hepatitis C? It's a curable disease. People have to know that they have to get tested. It is curable. It can be non-stigmatizing because you can be cured of hepatitis C. So an impassioned plea there. Now, it is 2020. And quite frankly, I don't think any podcast on any condition could go by entirely without mentioning the C word, COVID-19. I'm going to come to you, perhaps, Sunil, and ask, has COVID represented any opportunities for testing programs, particularly perhaps with regard to underserved communities? 
Yeah, I think that one of one of the potential kind of silver linings could be that we needed to quickly test for COVID, right? So the lab machines that are in countries, um, often in low and middle income countries, usually the machines are in a country for a specific disease only. So you'll have like a testing machine for, you know, HIV only and another one for TB only. Now, these machines can do all of the different tests but they're just usually only for one disease. Now, when, when COVID happened, we everybody realized that we need to kind of what we call integrate, integrate the testing and use these machines for COVID as well as what they were quote unquote installed to do. This has allowed an opportunity because now we see that these machines, you can use different tests on them. You can do an HIV test and a COVID test and an HCV test on that same machine. So what this has the potential to do is increase the testing capacity, especially in um, low and middle income countries and resource limited settings. And if we integrate the testing on these machines, we can potentially expand the access to that testing to a lot of different groups, including key populations. So perhaps small silver linings to a very large dark cloud of COVID-19. Sunil, I know you have a real global overview of this. How are we tracking globally in terms of achieving that WHO goal to eliminate hep C as a major public health threat by 2030? Yes. Um, you know, I think what we see is that some countries have been making really great strides, but unfortunately, the majority um, of countries are are not on board with with um, the elimination as of yet. Um, so Homi Razavi of the Center for Disease Analysis did an excellent um, analysis of 45 high-income countries. And of those, only 11 were on track to reach the WHO global hepatitis C targets by 2030. Um, so, you know, those are Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Iceland, Italy, Japan, Spain, Switzerland, Sweden, and the UK. Those are kind of in the high income uh, bracket, the leaders there. Um, so Egypt, of course, as we've already heard, has made great progress among other resource limited uh, settings. Georgia, the country of Georgia, um, has a national elimination program, and they've also made really great progress of the estimated around 150 thousand Georgians thought to be living with hepatitis C, they have cured uh, over 36,000 as of 2019, so just in a few years. And what's interesting is on the track to elimination, when a country initially makes that commitment, usually they have a lot of people who have been waiting around to, to figure out what's wrong with them. Um, so you can often identify and put on treatment quite quickly, that, that, that group of people who have been waiting. But then the challenge, the real challenge to meet the elimination targets is finding everybody else. So as Manal said before, you know, finding these missing millions, that's really what sets the countries who are on track apart from the countries who are not. The countries who are on track have developed systematic risk-based screening programs to identify and link to care those people that need it. So a clear message there, if we're going to achieve that WHO goal of eliminating hepatitis C as a major public health threat by 2030, we need to find people first. But so much more that we need to do. We need to have, as we've heard from all our experts, really robust testing and we need to eliminate stigma. So some really positive messages there, but inevitably more to do. Thank you so much, Jennifer, Manal, Sonia, for joining me today and sharing your insights into how we can reach the millions who are unaware that they're living with hepatitis C and make elimination of this virus a reality. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
But most importantly, thank you to our audience, of course, for listening. Please do, if you've enjoyed this, as we hope you have, tune in to our next episode as we continue to meet people on the front line of elimination efforts to discuss treatment pathways and the barriers that communities face accessing care. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Hepcast and you can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so others can find the show. Thank you so much, Jennifer, Manel and Sonia, and thank you for listening. The Hepcast is a collaboration between the World Hepatitis Alliance and Gilead Sciences Europe Limited. The Hepcast is fully funded by Gilead Sciences Europe Limited.